So I, I feel quite proud to be a part of such such a system. And as you mentioned earlier on, I mean, prison policies isn't about you know being rocket science. It's quite it's, it's quite easy. We have a lot of research. We have a lot of knowledge on what works and not. We know at least what what doesn't work because we have been doing it for since the Middle Ages, and that is you know putting people by behind bars for an unlimited period of time and treating them badly. That's the worst thing we can do. And I mean, everybody knows that deep down. Welcome to Innovational Correctness, a podcast all about innovation and transformation, hosted by David Luna, author, keynote speaker, and founder of Gamma Digital and Beyond. David and his guests discuss real-world practical advice on how to best harness the creativity of your employees and go from idea to product, giving you unique perspectives and insights into their success, all while separating hype from reality and replacing bullshit bingo with common sense. Let's jump right in into the show. Welcome back to another episode of the Innovational Correctness Podcast. My guest today is Tom Eberhardt. Tom Eberhardt is the former governor at the famous Bastoy Prison. Now he's the directorate for the correctional services responsible for the Norwegian-American cooperation. Some might remember the 2015 documentary Where to Invade Next from Michael Moore. There, Tom Eberhardt is one of the prison guards Michael Moore interviews. So what are some of the things that we will cover in this episode? Well, for one, what makes Norway's prison one of the most humane and, in my view, the most innovative prison systems in the world? How Norway went from a nation of pillaging Vikings full of violence, murder, and revenge, turned into a country where peace and forgiveness came to triumph? How Norway's prisons differ from the rest of the world and their U.S. counterparts, and what they are doing that others are not? Why the U.S., despite being really tough on crime and punishment, has one of the highest recidivism rate and crime rates in the world, and Norway has one of the lowest. If there's something special about Norwegian people, their culture or socialization that makes them more susceptible to rehabilitation, how Norway's prisons were plagued by violence and drugs 30 years ago, similar to their American counterparts, if Norway's maximum prison sentence of 21 years is enough for the most violent crimes, if it's really true what many foreign news reports claim that Halden Maximum Prison is a posh, luxurious boutique hotel where inmates have their own flat-screen TVs, and why that doesn't matter in the grand scheme things. We'll also explore the famous Bastoy prison island where inmates have heated floor, sauna, and five-star cooking classes, and what that's all about, how we as a society reconcile the need for retribution and punishment for heinous crimes, and the need for reintegration of criminals back into society, and finally, we'll see if my interview partner Tom Eberhardt really looks like the Norwegian Kevin Costner as the international press claims. Now, before we start this interview, a few disclaimers, and I think it's only fair to disclose the fact that I might be slightly biased on this topic, as I've worked as an active member for Amnesty International for about 10 years. There I fought heavily against the death penalty, probably one of the most severe punishment we as a society can give someone. So I just wanted to disclose that so there's no conflict of interest. Please keep in mind that the opinions expressed by Tom in this episode are his own and may or may not reflect the views of the Norwegian government or its correctional services. And just a quick reminder, I want to make this podcast much more interactive. So what does that mean? You can either suggest a guest or topic or send your feedback via email or even better as a voice message. This allows me to add your feedback to the podcast where all listeners can profit from your feedback and my response. Just go to innovationalcorrectness.com and click on either suggest guest or topic or leave voice message. Or if you prefer, just send an email to info at gamma Also, stay tuned until the end 
where I, as always, try to reflect on the interview and extract the key takeaways for you. Without further ado, let's jump right into the interview. So before we go into detail, maybe tell the listener something about yourself. Well, I'm 51 years old. I've been working in uh, corrections for 26 years now. I'm educated as a prison officer, started off as a prison officer and really worked my way up to be a prison governor, as we call it in Norway. And I've been prison governor for uh, 11 years, the last six of them in a prison called Boste Prison, which is an island outside of. And I also have education in crisis management, innovation, economics. All right. So we do have some overlapping innovation here yeah we have <laughs> I, th- I think actually having uh, some skills in, in, in innovation is quite useful when you are governing a prison because in, in the prison system there is a big lack of innovation yeah, i can imagine when i contacted the norwegian pr department of the correctional services i was actually quite pleasantly surprised by how welcoming they were with my podcast request i believe if i did the same in germany i would probably got have told off or had to fill out some formal request. So I thought that was very um, forthcoming and, and very welcoming. Uh, you, you know, I think uh, I've heard that before. Uh, and I think uh, this is about one of our core values, uh, which is openness and transparency. Uh, it's not something I would generally or the public would expect from a correctional facility. So during my research, I came across a source called Business Insider, and they claimed that you look like Kevin Costner. Is that true? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that was a phrase in the book called Incarceration Nations by a lovely woman called Bas Dreisinger. She's a professor from New York. You know, I, I saw that phrase and I was uh, at first a little bit disappointed. Why didn't she say Brad or Josh Clooney? But uh, no, uh, I think, I, in my opinion, we're not that, that much alike in looks anyway. Maybe there's a plot twist and at the end of the podcast, you reveal that you're actually Kevin Costner. <laughs> that won't happen, believe me. <laughs> What even made you become a correctional officer, and is that the right term? Yes, uh, in Norway we call them prison officer or correctional officer. I think that was maybe by chance. Uh, I was finishing uh, my period in the army. I served uh, seven months in South Lebanon as a UN soldier, quite fed up of being in the army, and I started to study economy. And one of my friends, her father, he worked for the Salvation Army, and they were running kind of a halfway house in Oslo, and he wondered if I was interested in taking uh, extra hours at night at this institution. I said, yes, why not? And I found out I sort of liked working with people, especially incarcerated people, talking to them, felt a very, uh, you know, interested interest in their stories, their background. So I started also to work extra in a prison, ELA prison uh, outside Oslo. And then uh, after a year or so, I applied to go into the prison staff academy. Uh, in Oslo. And from there, I never back. Interesting. So it's seldom like when I grow up, I want to be a correctional officer. Yeah, you know, everyone wants to be a soldier, policeman or a fireman, but never ever a prison officer. And I, I think that's kind of kind of sad. First of all, I think that the occupation is, is quite good. And also, it has to do with the fact that most correctional services throughout the world are quite unknown to people, quite unknown to the taxpayers, general public, which I think is actually quite scary because we're doing such a uh, very important job for the taxpayers. Yeah, I think there's a lot of misconception around prisons in general. 
the Norwegian prisons are considered one of the most humane in the world and based on my account anyway very very innovative innovative doesn't necessarily have to mean they use the newest technology or have to or use something that's completely new and also the Norwegian crime rates are extremely low and the recidivism rate is approximately 20 to 25% compared to 60 to 70% in the US depending what numbers and how they slice and dice those numbers at least for 2014 if we just look at the numbers and with the US being really tough on crime and punishment, shouldn't the U.S. have the lowest recidivism and crime rate? And what's Norway's secret sauce? And what is Norway doing that others, such as the U.S., are not? Mm. Well, that's a big and complicated question. I think, first of all, I think deep within any man, any 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 person is is the need for revenge when someone has hurt uh, the, the loved ones or family members or some wrongdoing. You know, as humans, we need to to silence that monster in our stomach that, you know, screams for revenge. But the thing is, uh, in my opinion, you cannot run a civil society like that because the, the state, the government, they need to take two steps back to see what's in the general public's best interest here. And first of all, the death penalty is inhumane and shouldn't be carried out anywhere. And it hasn't helped. I mean, you have a lot of countries in the world that executes people for for uh, criminality and if you see those countries they still have crime and when even the capital punishment doesn't work that should you know tell them something that you can stop it because it won't mean that you will have more crime especially when you look to norway a country where a lot of people are saying claiming that our prisons are a hotel and that you will almost get away with no punishment if you're caught for a crime which is obviously a, a, a myth so i think you cannot let you know hardliners and revenge set the, the guidelines for for running prisons or 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 set the bar for for punishment it's actually a lot of other factors that would help and i think you can look on into any country more or less in the world and see that the way we punish people for crime the way we are running the prison service are very much like the way we did it in the Middle Ages, it, it hasn't really changed that much. But all the scientists, they, they will say that uh, and agree that punishing people very, very hard for, for crime isn't in the best interest for the general public. On the contrary, one should focus on rehabilitation, uh, building skills, build, building competence among the inmates. That's the factors that will probably lower crime. And when the prisoners are allowed to, to do so while they're serving time in prison, I think that's a you know huge factor that would, that would lead to less crime in the future. If the punishment is all about you know revenge and punishment, giving them really a hard time, you will let people out on the streets that are probably a bigger danger to the general public than they were when they came into prison the first time. Yeah, absolutely. I think this notion or this feeling of I need to get revenge or I need to punish them is only natural. But I think we're born with both capacities to forgive or to rehabilitate. Well, for, I think forgiveness in itself is, a, is another issue. I'm not sure I could forgive someone that, you know, say, killed my girlfriend, but I wouldn't want him to go to uh, with the death penalty simply because what, what you said as well, it's inhumane. And from, from my time at Amnesty, you know, you see people that in, in the U.S. especially, they're there in, in death row for years and they don't know when they're going to get executed. So the question I would actually have to you then is how do we as a society then reconcile the need for retribution or punishment, say for a very severe crime, say a murder, and the need for 
for forgiveness or reintegration of criminals back into society? I think for a crime victim or a family, close family member, I think the amount of revenge can probably never be enough. I mean, like you're saying, if someone should hurt my wife or, or, or my kids, I will be, you know, really, really mad and I, I would want revenge. And I think that is fine. That's a natural feeling that we need as a species to survive. But as I said earlier on, that the government needs to take two, two steps back because the government, they are in no position either to forgive the crime nor punish as, a, as an emotion. They need to see what's in the best interest for the, the society as a whole for this crime. And they need to carry out the, the amount of punishment according to that. And I think probably and luckily most people out there uh, haven't been to prison. They have never ever served time in the prison, uh, which I think is a good thing because prison is is uh, is not a very good place to be. Norway has been, uh, you know, joked about in a lot of countries that our prisons uh, look like hotels. But in our legislation, it's like the only punitive element in the prison sentence is the loss of freedom. Other than that, we should keep focus on rehabilitation and resettlement into the society. And I think the actually the feeling of the loss of freedom is very much underrated among people. If you ask any person that actually have spent time in a prison, they will be very accurate on what the loss of freedom feels like. Over the years, I've had several people, you know, coming to visit um, the prison. It could be media, journalists, curious people. And they go, for instance, to Boston Island, the prison, and they will say, oh, this is so nice. How can be, this be punishment? And they will ask the in, uh, inmates, the, uh, how could this be punishment? And the inmates will say, well, you're here now. You see the, the nice nature. You see kind of normal housing. Try to stay here for years with no freedom. Then you will start to feel the loss of freedom. For instance, take our news one of our newest prisons, Halden Prison, you know, has been very much criticized or joked about because they have an ensuite bathroom which is tiled with uh, heated floors. They have flat screen televisions, an internal computer system and all that thing. But if you go into that cell knowing that you maybe will spend like 10 years there, you know you have committed a crime and you stay in this cell for more than maybe a half to 20, 24 hours of the day, then you will feel really that you have no freedom. You have a very little bit, little freedom, limited freedom, but you will really feel the loss of freedom on your body because after a while, this cell will feel much smaller, feel really, really bored. The people who are, you know, isolated in, in their cells, they all explain that, you know, how the walls are getting closer and closer to you. And that's, you know, that's the experience they have because of the loss of freedom. So I think uh, the feeling of loss of freedom is very much underrated because it has nothing to do with flat screen television, tiled floors, heated floors, that sort. Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions is at least the German philosophy of the prison system. At least I can speak in part of it, uh, even though I've never been to, to prison, so the listeners can feel relaxed, is the fact that the punishment is actually the freedom that is taken away and not so much how they are treated. So it's not like we're going to treat you like shit and that's the actual punishment, but no, we're going to take your freedom away for five, 10 or even 20 years. And I think an important point that you mentioned is that prison has more of a mediating effect, a someone that steps in similar to what uh, courts do. Say, okay, you stole my car, now I'm going to steal your car. And say, no, 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 self-justice is not allowed. We as a government or as a prison system will step in and take a neutral stance and look that it's fair and it's not just about revenge. Would that be a, a accurate description of... Yeah, I think so. And I think that 
the state, the government, they actually carry out the revenge on behalf of the victims. Uh, and they will do that in a fair, fair way. And I think they need to respect actually the power they have, because I think probably the, the one of the, the strongest means or measure a government have towards population is to take away their freedom. Because within us as human beings, the, the need for freedom is, is, is so huge. So when we carry out a loss of freedom, we need to do so with the biggest amount of respect. Because if we don't, we will release angry, bitter and really dangerous people to the society. And then we transfer the risk from the prison service till the taxpayers, which is really unfair. I also read, and that was quite astonishing for me, is that the Norwegian prisons didn't really or operated very similar to their American counterparts up until 1998. They were also plagued with violence and, and drugs 30 years ago before there was a system-wide overhaul. Is, is that true? Why and what, what changed? And maybe you can elaborate for the listeners how that development came to be. Yeah, at least I can try. But then maybe I'll have to go further back. And as you know, uh, once we used to be Vikings, uh, Norwegians, Swedes, Danes, we used to rape our way through Europe, uh, molesting people. And, you know, everybody feared the Vikings. But then we stopped being Vikings for several reasons. Uh, uh, several hundred years after, we were a part of the Second World War. We were occupied for five years. A lot of the people who were sent to prison at that time for being part of the resistance or, or something like that, they later become quite central politicians in Norway. For instance, our prime ministers uh, in the 60s and, and, and the 70s, they all had been to prison and concentration camps uh, during the war. And I think that experience developed something within them about incarceration policies, about uh, crime and punishment. So when we in the last part of the 70s had a social democratic government, we had a quite, at the time she was considered to be a quite liberal minister of justice. And the government, they uh, wrote a white paper to the parliament regarding our prison system, which at the time stated that within the prison service, the prison guards no longer should be merely guards. They should be more like correctional officers. Instead of only guarding the prisoners, they should now start to help them. Uh, and the correctional service at the time, they developed a model called contact officer model. But this was uh, in the early start uh, of the 80s. But th that white paper wasn't really put uh, in, in, in the right place before several years afterwards. So we had in the 80s a lot of riots towards the beginning of the 90s. Then we had two separate occasions, two prison officers killed. So the situation in, in our prison was really bad. Most of our prisons were quite old, really out of date, in a very bad state also, with a big lack of maintenance. So I think both the different kind of governments at the time in the 80s, last part of the 80s, beginning of the 90s, the prison staff academy, the Department of Justice, uh, worked very, very good in order to change this, this system. So they started to change the prison officer role. They uh, started to focus much more on rehabilitation. Uh, they started to uh, slowly build new prisons. Uh, you know, the, the prison prison uh, infrastructure in Norway is it's quite peculiar because Norway is a very you know long country with a lot of small cities scattered. Uh, around the coast and every small city had its own prison and probably the smallest one ha once had like 10 to 15 cells uh, and those prisons were very little cost efficient uh, efficient so they started to close a lot of them and build 
you know, bigger but much better institutions. So uh, I think probably the biggest trans- transition happened in the 90s uh, because then really the, this uh, white paper from the last part of the 70s really had a huge impact even though it was issued some some 15 years ago. There was among the prison uh, officers a kind of uh, change of generations, the prison staff academy, so that a lot more of their applicants to become a prison officer, the numbers rose. You know, uh, in the last part of the 70s and the 80s, no one wanted to work in the prison. In the uh, in the 90s, they had like 3,000 applications for uh, 175 vacant positions uh, at the prison staff academy, wow. and, and and the unemployment rate in Norway was also very very low. So it it, it became for some reason a very popular uh, occupation. We saw a lot of the people applying to go to the prison staff academy already had a, a bachelor's degree in psychology, uh, sociology, or or criminology or things like that. So we saw that the, the general prison staff population became more educated, and I think a key issue to change any prison system is about the prison staff uh, education and background because if we don't change the prison officers and the prison culture we cannot change the prisoners that's not really possible yeah absolutely you touched on a point that wasn't all too obvious for me is but if i if i think about us prisons most of the guards are i don't know like maybe they get a, the half a year of training and that's about it find that in stark contrast to how well educated norway's uh, prison guards are yeah that's true i think probably uh, even though I'm not very objective, uh, I would say that Norway, we probably have the best prison officer or the education in the world. Actually, now uh, you will receive a bachelor's degree when you're finished at the Prison Staff Academy. So the quality of the education is is quite good. And, you know, they, they uh, approach the, the prison officer role from you know different kind of angles. You obviously have self-defense. You will have uh, communication. You will have psychology, sociology, criminology. And that kind of leads up to the fact that our prison officers are, what we call them is that they, we say that they are generalists. They have uh, a little bit of social worker, a little bit of a guard, a little bit of a therapist. They are all that into one prison officer role. While in most other countries, you will find that the prison officer is more or less a guard. So we have decided to uh, include a lot of other roles into the role of being a prison officer. Yeah, I think if you look at prisoners or think about a, a prison guard, it's more about he's just a supervisor. He's there just to look after the, the inmates so they don't escape. But if I hear your description, it's more about shaping and making an impact because why else would I need all these subjects that I need to study? And I I assume a bachelor's degree is the minimum requirement to become a correctional officer. Is that correct? Yeah, when they are finished at the staff academy, they uh, have a bachelor's degree because it's now a a more or less two-year education. I think that's a development that has been uh, carried out for the last 10 years or so because we, when we started this uh, transition, we saw that giving people education, the prison staff, giving them more skills would improve the prison or the correctional service even more. And the fact is, as you started to mention, is that a lot of... In a lot of countries, you will have a course on maybe a couple of weeks where most of the education will be shooting. For instance, you know, to work with people, you work with people with a lot of trauma and a lot of problems. You need to be educated in, in you know, how to cope with uh, those issues. So uh, I think education is 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 uh, is very important. But also, I think personality is you know, it's about who you rec- uh, recruit to become uh, a prison officer. Uh, your personality. 
one thing you remind me of as well is with the police, it's the same in the US. They get about six months training at police academy. It's more like a military drill. And that is in stark contrast to, I think you need at minimum two years for Mitra Dienst, which is like the, the entry level of police here. You need two to three years training. Obviously, it's a different society and I don't want to do America bashing, just highlighting, you know, where country or society could improve. But that's also in stark contrast, I think, to, I believe it was Norway or Denmark, where you have like five years of training before you even become a police officer. Yeah, so it's not Norway. I think here you also, at the uh, police academy, you will have a bachelor's degree. So it's, it's like three years. But still, I think uh, your point is quite good. But I think the good thing about America is that they have started to, to change. They have, you know, realized all the problems and challenges they have in their correctional systems and they want to change. Yeah, and America has the possibility on a very local level to vote out the sheriff if you don't like them. One of the few countries that allows that, they just need to want the change and push through the reforms. True. I, th I think for us Europeans, such a, such a thing is quite strange. You know, to, to like vote for a sheriff, like it, it's a chief of police more or less. We don't have that in any country in Europe, Europe as I know. Yeah, that reminds me of a story almost 20 years now, I visited a distant relative in the U.S. and went on a ride-along with, with somebody that was a, a police officer. And I got to experience firsthand how corrupt a police sheriff can be. So we were sitting at dinner and the police sheriff was doing some more or less inappropriate things with underaged uh, teenagers. I believe the two girls were under 16 Obviously, it was consensual, but still, uh, it was illegal. And they were discussing or bragging about how they pulled over this, this guy to, for the second or third time, and now they're going to make him pay. So obviously, just because you have all these rights and responsibilities as a society doesn't always mean it goes in the right direction. No, that, that, is, that is true. And I think in a lot of countries, uh, also Norway, uh, I think politicians, they are doing things, they are forming opinions in order to get re-elected. You know, that, that's in the, uh, in the backspine of any politicians. It's all about, you know, being elected. And I think that in Norway, probably Germany, in America, any politicians who are addressing prison policies, crime, they will automatically more or less, you know, try to address this revenge feeling people have in their gut, kind of, you know, to feed that monster because they know that that will gather votes in order to be re-elected. And I think, I mean, even in Norway, which is considered to be a very liberal, liberal country, it's very hard to get elected to even to the parliament if you are very public about that you are soft on crime or considered to be soft on crime because that won't apply to, you know, this uh, gut feeling of revenge in, in, in people's uh, in people's stomach. And obviously you also in Norway will find the brave ones that do that do say that we need to, to you know be liberal also in our, in our prison policies but the big big majority of politicians that want to have an ambition to be re-elected they will almost always scream for more police and more uh, you know stricter punishments I think that's in a lot of politicians backspine yeah I think it's just popular so we've talked a lot about the, the prison systems maybe you can before we can continue explain to the listeners that haven't been to prison yet hopefully kind of describe what a typical Norwegian pr uh, prison and the whole intake process looks like. Uh, I can try at least. Well, in Norway, if you do a crime, you are caught by the police, you will be tried in a court. Firstly, you will be, police might send you to uh, uh, to be a remand prisoner, pre-trial. Also, you go to court to see if the police are allowed to set you in prison until the, uh, the court case is closed. They do so. You will go to a prison to be a remand prisoner. In Norway, uh, we've 
kind of mixed both remand prisoners, pre-trial inmates and convicted inmates. It's not really a big difference in our country. Uh, you will go to court then, either be acquitted or you will be given a prison sentence. In Norway, we have chosen a path that not that many countries, uh, other countries have done because when you are in court, court for instance, and you will be issued a, maybe a two-year sentence and if the prisons are full, 100% full, you won't be sent directly to prison. You will be sent home with your prison sentence and they will say that you will be given a notice in the mail to present yourself and at this in this prison when there is a free cell. So we know that we have choose, chosen not to overcrowd our prisons. Instead, we have developed what we call a, a, a prison coup. So, but if the sentence you are given in court is, is very, very severe, a lot of years, you will go directly to prison. They will find an empty cell. Then you will, the first day in prison, you will be registered. You will be shown all the rules and regulations that apply for the prison. And when you are a convicted inmate in Norway, you have an obligation either to work or go to school. So that uh, you will do from 8 o'clock in the morning until 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Then it's called free time, spare time. Then you might be in a cell uh, or you might be uh, out, uh, out in called a socializing room. So it could be a library, a living room or something like that together with other inmates. And then you typically will be locked in your cell at uh, 8.30 in the evening until next morning when you're uh, waking at seven. That is more or less, you know, the standard 24 hours in, in a Norwegian prison. Okay, so they don't spray you down with hoses as you see in Hollywood. No, they don't. <laughs> they don't. I think that, that reminds me of something which I think is very important when we are talking about prisons and prison policies is that people, they tend to get their knowledge from how prison works by seeing TV series and films produced in Hollywood that, you know, are a part of building stereotypes, both of who the inmates are. You build stereotypes about who the prison officers are. And I think when you ask the general public who, what kind of person is a prison officer, they will probably, they will be portrayed as kind of a Hollywood figure, like a, a mean, corrupt, low-educated uh, person. Uh, I mean, whenever did you see a film and you saw a prison officer portrayed in a very good way? Probably maybe uh, in one film, and that's the, you know, the Green Mile with Tom Hanks. That's my favorite film. Yeah, and probably that's the only one prison officer that ever has been portrayed as a positive figure in, in Hollywood. All the others are you know, portrayed as uh, corrupt, bribed, mean uh, people, which is not a fact in in, in most countries. Well, what uh, other misconceptions are there? I assume there's more misconceptions about the prison system and correctional officers. Yeah, I think, you know, as, as consultants, as a prison officer, all, you know, people have quite stereotypes typical uh, views on who they are. And I think the same goes for prisoners. People are, you know, sent to prison. And for instance, I have a son, he's like seven years old, and I've taken him to uh, my prison several occasions. He's very eager to go there. Uh, this is, uh, I have to say, a low-security prison. And whenever he's there, he's having a lot of fun. He's talking to the inmates. They are making him lunch, joking with him and so on. But he never ever reflects that these guys are criminals or thieves, like uh, he likes to call them. So whenever we leave the prison for the day, he will ask, Dad, where, where were the thieves? Because in his mind, the guys he was interacting with in the prison, they were not thieves or criminals because they looked like anybody. And if you ask, I think, any small child aged before 10 years old uh, to, 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 you know, to, to draw a prisoner 
then you will see all the stereotypes coming in there at once. You know, they will be drawn like a, uh, ugly. They will look dangerous. You know, and really, you know, look mean. And I think when you go to any prison in any country, you will see that. I mean, they look like everybody else. They are as good looking, bad looking as you know, really any guy out there. Uh, and also, as a shock to someone, maybe the also more or less behave quite normal. And I think when you see media, you see newspapers, you will see, you know, a lot of disturbance, you know, going on in a lot of prisons. You know, it's riots, it's violence and so on. And I think that has to do more with the conception of prison, uh, the conception of, you know, institutions rather than the people in them. Because I think, I like to use an example of myself. When I was young, in the, like, 1990, Norway had a conscript army. So I had to go to the army after I was uh, finished at high school. Uh, and I remember my girlfriend at the time, she was driving me to this army camp uh, outside Oslo. And I was going in there, it was lovely weather. We were sitting in the car outside the gates, and she was saying goodbye and so on. And she was, she was going to miss me. But I didn't look at her at all. I just looked into the army camp. And I saw all these guys in uniforms with weapons uh, running back and forth. And I was you know, so intrigued that I thought, you know, very soon I'm going to be a, part, a guy like that. I'm going, to, I'm going to be a soldier. And I was thinking, what is it like behind that gate? What is the culture like? What do I need to do in order to be accepted and be, you know, one of the crowds? So uh, I went into the army camp and just, you know, within a couple of weeks, I was going from being this, you know, normal high school guy and I was transfer- transforming myself to a guy who, uh, you know, uh, put a poster of half-dude women on my locker, was very much into weapon uniforms and, and, you know, army stuff. And that is about me trying to be a part of the existing culture. You know, I was, you know, as humans, we want to blend in. And I think the same go- goes for prison. If you are being sentenced in a court, you sit in the van, uh, from the court going to a prison, you see the prison gates open. Uh, you had never ever been to prison before. And I bet what's on your mind is you're thinking, what do I need to do to survive in this prison for 10 years? Because as humans, we want to feel safe and we want to fit in. So they go to prison and if they go to prison and when in the prison, the prison culture is quite hostile, is a lot of violence and expectations of you as a new inmate is to be a part of that culture. And if you want to survive, you blend into that culture. And I think that's uh, why a lot of prison culture in a lot of countries are quite bad because you never ever change that culture. It is always bad. It's very hyper-masculine in, in a male prison. People who normally are not you know, a big danger or very mean on the outside, they go into this culture and they're starting to adopt that kind of culture. So I think in a lot of cases, you see that prisons are transforming people neg- uh, in a negative way rather than positive. So I think for instance, when going back to the example with my son, uh, I remember him coming to bus day once. Uh, we had this open day. A lot of people were there to visit the prison. Anybody could come. And I saw him. Every inmate knew that this was my son. So he was hungry. So we went to a couple of guys in the in the kitchen and asked, uh, can you make me a sandwich? And they said, of course. And he was there beside them. It was four guys. And I stood there and I was watching them. And I thought that, well, now these four guys are making my son a sandwich. And they all serve long sentences for killing people. But in the same time, I, I was not afraid as a dad. And I thought, probably now my son is in the safest place he will ever be. Because if someone would try to do something to my son, he would have had four guys, you know, defending him. And this is about that most uh, people in prison are not necessarily, you know, a 
huge danger to other people, even though they have been a huge danger to some individuals before they went to prison. For instance, if you see the crime rates in Norway for murder, for instance, you know, you will see that from the 70s that the the, the rates for of murder has declined quite much. Uh, it used to be like in general uh, about one murder a week, 52 in a year. I think now we are between 25 and 30. So we don't have a lot of killings, murders in Norway. And if you look on into these cases, you will see that most of these people convicted for murder in Norway, it's not premeditated murder. So the murder was never planned. It happened. You will see the majority of those killings were committed in with drugs, alcohol, high state of rage or psychiatry. So uh, there is, you know, things that occurred that put people in a situation where they for instance, murdered someone. But people tend to think that people in prison, especially killers, uh, murderers, are like Hannibal Lecters. And in my 25 years in the Norwegian prison service, I had really met many people like him. I meet more or less normal people that has been in a situation where they, for instance, killed someone. Most of them, they regret, like hell to say so. Uh, but they cannot, you know, undo the crime. But they were drunk, they were drugged, or had some kind of uh, psychiatric issue there and then. So uh, I think that has to be, you know, taken into consideration when uh, we think of prisoners, that the general prison, prison population is not like Hannibal Lecter. They are normal people, more or less, that have done uh, unnormal stuff. Yeah, I think you raised a very important issue is art imitates life and life imitates art. And the only way to break that cycle, because you also mentioned that essentially violence breeds violence. If I get into a very masculine, violent culture, it's very likely that I'll pick up those skills in, in quotes and not be a, a better human being. And the only way to kind of break the cycle is to lead by example and saying we need to lead by example like uh, Norway is doing and opening up, making it more transparent, like taking your kids to prison and saying, look, these aren't the rapists you see in the movies. They made a, a huge mistake and now they're paying for it. Exactly. And I think also the fact that, you know, we need to tell the general public that, you know, a uh, uh Prison can happen to anyone. And also, I uh, used the example that, for instance, if you have a son is going to college or, or university, he's he's in a bar, he meets this other guy, which is, you know, really wasted drunk, he's aggressive, uh, and suddenly your son are being hit, and he's defending himself, and he, he hits this guy on the jaw, he falls backward, uh, and he hits his head, and he dies. Then suddenly, your son has killed someone, and he, he will be going to prison. And if you ask, you know, the father, that what kind of prison sentence do you think we should give your son in order, you know, that he can come out on the other side after the prison sentence and and, and be uh, still a good a good person. And I've never ever met anyone who says that you know put him behind bars, lock him up, and, and throw away the. Uh, and I think people need to know that everybody in prison is someone's son, someone's father, someone's mother. So we we, we need to stop you know dehumanizing the people that we put in prison because they are human beings. Yeah, you, you, you remind me of a actually a prominent example here in Berlin that just happened not too long ago where in a 50 zone, there was a SUV and the driver killed, I think, three or four people, two kids, I believe, or something like that. And apparently, I mean, that's the story where they looked at the, the evidence as he had some type of epilepsy and accidentally stepped on the gas and then, you know, killed quite a few people. You know, that can happen by accident. It's very tragic. And I'm sure sure he didn't do it on purpose. And I think maybe that's a big misconception is like, okay, everybody that killed someone did it on purpose and now they need to be punished to the fullest extent. True. And I think in any society, you will have a lot of that, those examples. And I think challenge for any society is to, you know, think of these people that do 
bad things, they are still human. And if we think of them as still human, I think we also would start to think otherwise when it comes to, to punishment. Because obviously any society need to have a functional court system, prison system. People are need, you know, any society need to be regulated uh, also by, you know, the sorts of punishment. But we need to make that kind of punishment something that is useful for the whole society. And actually we can take the chance while people are in prison to to work with them so that bad thing doesn't happen again to other people. Okay, so let me, let me challenge you. Maybe there's some listeners out there and say, okay, I'm bored treating people or inmates like humans and that we should be fair to them and take away their freedom. Why don't we just lock them up like the U.S. does for, say, if they committed three murders for 180 years or three life sentences? Why, why not hire? I don't know. What, what is the maximum sentence in, in Norway? Is it 20 years, I believe? Yeah, 21 years. 21 years. Why, why not 60 for, for somebody that killed 20 people? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a good question because, for, for instance, for the, the relatives of the, of the murder victims, when, it, when will it ne- uh, be enough punishment? Probably never, right? And that's understandable. Uh, if that happened to you know, someone I love, I will feel the same. But I think at some point, any civilized state, any civilized government should take those two steps back and think we need to have a system that you know people think of as fair we need to have a system that is from governmental point of view seems fair and if you put for instance people in give them like 160 years of prison obviously it's uh, you will die long before you're released first of all i think uh, the the cost of economical cost of putting people to prison it will be you know sky high uh, also i think uh, I believe in you know giving people you know chances, and obviously for really, really severe crime like you know murders and worse, you know the threshold for that chance should be higher. That I mean that's that's natural, but I think for instance in Norway with the uh, the highest sentence you will get is twenty one years. I think if you take two steps back and think 21 years back in your own life that will you know for uh, most people seem like a really really long time and if someone should tell me or you that now you're going to a prison for 21 years 21 years that's so long time but when you start to measure it for instance to america like 160 years or other countries like 50 years it seems not that much but i i'm quite convinced that for the individual going to prison 21 years really feels like forever yeah if i imagine being locked up for 20 to 30 years and i get out and don't know how, what a smartphone is how to use it and what netflix is and similar to the movie demolition man with sylvester stallone where they get put on ice and then wake up in the future and they don't know how to use anything it's just completely everything's new that's pretty cruel or a cruel punishment yeah we actually had that discussion yesterday uh, in the directorate here uh, because, for instance, in, in Norway, if you have served 10 years in a prison and the day you went to prison, you probably uh, had your mobile phone on you. And Nokia. Yeah, Nokia, sure. exactly. That's my point. So when you're released after 10 years and you will go and find your mobile phone and you will see a phone that you it's no longer uh, usable. You're not used to, for instance, when you are uh, communicating with the government, uh, the, the the state welfare office or something like that. Uh, people do that by computers now. People do that by the internet now. But internet communication with the government, governmental agencies has changed so much just in 10 years. It goes so fast. So we are now, even in our country, in the danger of uh, releasing people from prison that are actually technological technological dinosaurs. So we, I think we need to change that. 
just if, if I go into myself and I would put myself in that situation, that would cause lots of frustration and would actually make it harder for me to reintegrate. If I'm if I know nothing, I'm like, I feel so stupid. I don't know how to use a telephone. I don't know how to use this and that. And nobody's helping me. And that would, I think, would make reintegration even harder and assuming that lead to another crime just because I'm just so fed up at, at some point. Yeah, that, that's, uh, I agree with you. I mean, just now, for instance, uh, if you have a bank, uh, bank account, you can use all these, you know, apps to um, transfer m- money el- electronically. But if the last time you were in a bank was like 10 years ago, you were used to probably go physically into the bank to uh, get your money or to an ATM machine. But now it's even several places where you cannot use cash anymore. So, you know, being a technological dino, d- d- dinosaur is, is, uh, <laughs> is quite dangerous also because the only, more or less, one of the few places left where cash is usable is among, you know, uh, criminal environments. Well, that actually would lead me to the following question, which would be, shouldn't we then lower the prison sentences? Because time taken away in our current environment, because it moves much faster, is much more of a punishment than, say, in the 70s to the 80s, not much has changed, relatively speaking, to 10 years from, I don't know, 2010 to 2020? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I haven't, I haven't really given that uh, much thought. Uh, yeah, maybe maybe that's a point. First, you say that the transition in any society goes much faster than it used to. On the other hand... So, oh, the technology, yeah. yeah. But on the other hand, also, I mean, the, the life expectancy uh, in age is also going up. That's a good point. So I, I think maybe that you know adds up to zero. I don't know, but uh, I think probably the, there's a big challenge for any government, you know, to find the right balance of prison sentences, the length of prison sentences. Uh, you know, on the on one hand, it should be focused, it should be humane, it should be not so many years, so that you know it will ruin the government. On the other hand, it should be enough, so it feels kind of fair fair to the victims of crime. So it, you know, it's need to be balanced, and that's kind of tricky. So maybe you can, because we, we, we touched on a lot of on, on the Norwegian prison and the US, maybe you can explain how the European prison are similar, or how they differ to the ones in Norway, and just give us like the, the key differences maybe between just the Nordic countries and how they differ. Uh, well, I think within the Nor- uh, Norwegian countries, I think we have learned a lot from each other. Uh, I remember when I was at the prison staff academy in the the mid of the nineties. We learn a lot from you know the Swedish model. So we we steal uh, from no uh, from Sweden. We steal from Denmark. They steal from us, and I think that's quite good. Uh, so I think our tree system, it's it's uh, three different systems are have more similarities than we have differences, uh, which I think is good. Going further out in Europe, uh, I think you will see more differences, and I think probably the biggest difference is. Probably the role of the prison officer, the way they do the job, uh, the way they treat the inmates, which is obviously based on you know the, the culture in the system. And I think probably in in the Nordic countries, I think the thought of that the prison sentence should be you know more than just loss of freedom. It should be more about rehabilitation, resettling into the society than just the loss of freedom itself. It's more a Nordic thought than what you will find further out in Europe. But the a peculiar thing is that a lot of these prison buildings, they look exactly the same. Uh, so I think it's no, not so much about you know prison design. It's more about how you design the human capital. Since 2013, there are officially 
tours organized by the Prison Law Office and Vera Institute of Justice, which I haven't heard of before, where officials from at least a dozen U.S. states have toured prisons in Norway, Germany, and the Netherlands. Have you participated in these tours? And if so, what were your impressions? What were the topics that were plaguing these participants, especially from the U.S., the most? And do you have some like memorable moments that you can or want to share? Yeah. You know, um, I've been involved in those tours my first year as a governor at Bastet Island. Those tours now are organized by a, an organization called AMEND, uh, which is, has an origin from the University of California. in San Francisco. And they also used to work closely with the prison law office. And uh, But now they have kind of changed ways. They still work closely, but they're not organized together anymore. Uh, nevertheless, uh, they, have, they have brought American politicians, prison managers, prison officers, unions. Uh, representatives from different kind of states uh, in America to Norway, Sweden, Denmark, Germany, and the Netherlands, in order to you know try to give them new angles on prison policies, uh, different kind of tools they might use in the various prisons in America, and this has been quite interesting to be a part of Amend and their work. And now I've just two weeks ago I have a leave from my job at Boste Prison to oversee the work we do with Amend uh, from the directorate uh, here in Norway, which is quite a uh, quite interesting challenge. So uh, they've, they've started off with quite small states in America. I think that probably the first states were Alaska, Hawaii, North Dakota, Oregon, and so on. And I remember uh, because I also worked quite closely with developing the corrections in uh, both Romania and the Czech Republic. But when I first met these uh, American colleagues, I was kind of struck of how how honest they were, uh, how open they were, what they described for the really, really need for change in the, in the American prison system. Were they desperate? Yeah, kind of. At least some of them. Because what we were being told as Norwegian is that in, in America, probably the one thing that both the Republicans and the Democrats could agree on is that some something needs to be done about the American correctional system. Because, I mean, they have like two and a half million uh, incarcerated people. They have uh, obviously a lot of different prisons and they, they spend, you know, billions of dollars every year to lock people up. And as they say, does it work? Uh, because they have a lot of violence in these prisons, you know, a lot of disturbances. So they, they you know, really felt the need for change. Uh, some of the people they bought, brought to Norway uh, was quite skeptical before they, they went there. You know, I have thoughts like, you know, what can the Norwegian learn us? There's nothing wrong with our system. But then they, you know, uh, was allowed to um, walk around uh, different prisons in Norway. And I think some of them were quite shocked on, on what they saw. Really, the big majority was quite positively shocked uh, about, you know, what is possible to do in a prison. And actually, I think what uh, struck them most was the kind of relations the prison officer had with the prisoners. You know, the good culture, the good climate uh, that was in our prison. That was, I think, quite shocking to them. Especially when they were come out to my prison, Baste Island. They were even more shocked that, you know, because for them... It seemed like you know, you know, a nice island with an, with nice buildings, and they saw all these people, you know, working with in the community on the island, and they were not really able to tell who were inmates and who were staff because everybody was so friendly to them. And I remember this guy from from one of the states in America. He was uh, a union representative, and we were going into the agriculture department uh, at Boston. And we were stopping there to talk with, with the inmates. Uh, and, you know, it was a big group of Americans, about 30 of them. And it was this guy who came over to the Americans. Uh, he spoke uh, English fluently. 
and I was talking to this uh, union representative and they, you know, this American guy, he asked them, uh, have you ever been to an American prison? He said, no, I have not, but I've, uh, I'm, I'm from Holland, but I've spent 15 years in a Mexican prison. And this, you know, started to have a very, you know, nice uh, chat for about, you know, 10 minutes. Then we, 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 we had to move to another building. So when I said, okay, we need to go, this uh, Dutch guy, he, he said to this American union representative, okay, thank you for the, for the talk. And, you know, um, patted him on the back. And all the rest of the group, they looked at this and they, you know, went completely silent because this was kind of shocking to them and they were awaiting this union representative's reaction to the you know pat on the back and he you know stood there and he he, he uh, was thinking for like four seconds then he went over to the, the this Dutch guy and and shook his hand and said thank you for the conversation all the these other guys the other americans in the group was wow and i you know asking them later why why the wow uh, what happened there and he said, well, this guy has worked in like, you know, 25 years in as a prison officer and a union representative, and he has never, ever shook that inmate's hand, ever. So th- this was the first time that they actually saw that. So and I've seen a lot of incidents like that where the people coming are so uh, surprised on what they see in our prisons, the uh, relationship the prisoners have with the staff, that they're so, you know, kind of satisfied, the low number of violence, and also the way we in our high security prisons deal with potential violent incidents uh, i think has also has also taken them by surprise now when we are, are very organized in our work with amend and the different kind of states as we see that what the american wants more of is uh, they want more knowledge about what we call dynamic security they will uh, want uh, more knowledge on how we communicate and deal with violent inmates. And they also want uh, more information about our contact uh, officer scheme. So that goes for a lot of states. We see states like North Dakota, Oregon has really changed much in their system in a impressively short while. Yeah, one example I'm going to post in the show notes is a short documentary about 30 minutes called the Norden, Nordic prison, where a hardcore retired governor of a maximum security prison from the New York State in the U.S. visits Nordic prisons. And yeah, they're in the, the Swedish maximum prison system. And he walks around and all he sees is threats. Oh, they're knives and cayenne pepper wouldn't be allowed in our in our kitchen. So they go into this open area, this communal area. And one of the prisoners doesn't want to be filmed. So he covers his, his face and the American and and the American retired governor says, well, that wouldn't be allowed and we would punish him. So if he likes taking long morning walks, we would take that away from him like for at least a week. And the Swedish guard, she remarks, well, that's that's very that's a very old way of thinking. That's like the, the child rearing in terms of uh, punishing your, your child. What I found really sad is that that retired prison governor, he didn't see the effectiveness of the whole system. And that's what I also tell my clients when they get feedback for their idea for from, from users and customers is you might not like the feedback, but at least acknowledge that it might be much more effective, even if you don't like it. So he didn't really take any useful things back with him, which I found really sad. Well, I think that has to do, you know, with the, you know, with culture. I mean, if you have worked in a culture which operates in a certain way for, you know, decades, you're a part of a system that has operated that way in, in your whole career. And then you go and you are probably without much explanation. You are put on camera uh, and uh, shown something completely else. I think it's quite easy to, you know, be taken by surprise because I, in my experience, you know, the, the huge majority of the Americans that Amend has brought to Norway are very positively surprised and they pick up 
the ideas in an instant. And it, it could be quite small things, but small things, uh, small positive things in a huge system, you know, have, have big impact. It could be something like, for instance, we had this visit from Mongolian prison that was quite impressed that we had, that we on Boston Island, we had a kind of a local democracy where inmates selected to a council uh, with staff members. It was 10 people and they were allowed to have discuss, discuss and decide upon some matters in the prison. And they liked the idea, so they went back to their prison and established something like that, which for this prison was, you know, a kind of a big re- uh, revolution. And I think that's the good thing about, you know, working with Americans is that they are so, uh, when they are in this change mode, uh, change goes quite fast uh, because they are not that much bureaucracy. When they are going into something, they do it, you know, so very much. Yeah, they tend to be more pragmatic where Germans say, okay, we need to analyze this for 200 years and then we'll have the perfect system <laughs> versus True. If, if I deal with American clients, it's more, okay, let's do this. Uh, what do we need? Uh, who do we need in power to, to get this thing rolling? And then they'll just try it and maybe they'll fail. And then you'll have the, the, the German mentality of, oh, no, we, we, we can't fail. That'll haunt us for, for our life. And yeah. <laughs> so, so you mentioned Bastoy. I Island. And if the listeners are not familiar with it, they might read things like, oh, they have heated floors, sauna, tennis courts, horseback riding, five-star cooking classes. And they're like, you're kidding, right? Well, some of, some of it uh, is meat. <laughs> we don't have uh, horseback riding. We don't ride the horses. They work on the fields. We use them for transportation with the you know, wagons and carriages. And the housing is quite simple, Norwegian standard. Yes, we have heated floors, especially in the bathrooms, because our climate really tells us that that is a very good solution. Because it, you know, in this island, it can be like minus 20 degrees in a storm. So it's not, not nothing really luxury about it. The island is there. It's pretty. It's nice when it's sunshine in the summer and that's when the media comes to the island uh, when they are allowed to come but what media really should do is come to the island in january uh, when it's like you know minus 20 degrees and a storm but tom that's uncomfortable (laughs) i know i know but so does it feel for the inmates as well (laughs) <laughs> and even though in the summer when it's nice, you can ask any inmate there and ask them, do you feel that you have lost your freedom on this island? And they will say yes, because they cannot leave the island. They cannot have visits from the loved ones when they want to. The freedom they have is quite limited to the island. Uh, and there's a curfew that starts at 22.30 as well. Can can any inmate go to this island? No, they have to apply. Uh, the normal thing is that they apply to go there from high security prison when it's getting near the end of the uh, the sentence. It could be like anything from, from six months to five years. So it really depends on who the inmates are and, and, and so on. So they have to apply to go there. And, and what led to this very fairly open and, and, and special prison on Bastoya Island? Well, I think that the history, uh, the history of the island is actually quite bad. Uh, it used to be a reformatory for boys until the 1980s. Then it was converted to a prison because, as I explained earlier on, we had this system with uh, not overcrowding our prison, but instead we had people in a prison queue waiting to go in to do their sentence. And in the uh, 80s, this queue was very big, so they needed new prisons. So what they did was that they had this island that was at that time empty because they had closed down the reformatory for young boys. So they converted this institution on the island into a prison. In the beginning, it was an apartment underneath Oslo prison, but after some years, it was established as an open prison, uh, an independent prison. 
underneath the Ministry of Justice. But the thing is, was that the, the number of staff on this island was quite low, and they started to receive uh, inmates with a lot of long sentences, even though they still came there uh, on the last part of the sentence. And, but the problem is the number of staff. Uh, so they started thinking, how can we you know, make use of the inmates in a more cost-efficient way, uh, because we don't have the staff members. So they decided to to convert the prison, you know, from just being a prison on an island to be more of a, a prison island where you have, so to say, a prison village, a prison community that actually make use of all the island with uh, a ferry company, agriculture department, and uh, a lot of functions that you will actually uh, find in a normal village, a village shop, a cafeteria, and so on. So now it's uh, more or less a prison village which are uh, run by both staff uh, and inmates together. That's more, more or less a result of the lack of lack of prison officers on the island. And, and how many escapes have there been? Probably some of the, the listeners will be wondering. Yeah, good question. Uh, I think we see that uh, statistically you'll have one escape maybe for every fifth year or something. But what's important to remember is that this is a low security prison. All the inmates that are there are being you know risk assessed that if they should escape, they are no longer considered to be a threat to the society or an individual anymore. So if they manage to escape the island, which is quite hard, because you either have to steal a boat or swim, you are put on the wanted list by the police. It will not be a man for several days. So escapes there is not that normal. It doesn't happen a lot. And I think for the huge, huge majority of the inmates, they want to be there and just finish off their set while getting new uh, knowledge and competence. Now, we don't want to leave the listener in the impression that every prison in Norway is like Pastoy Island. So if they look up a maximum security prison in Norway, like Halden, they might read things like it's a posh, luxurious boutique hotel where inmates have their own flat screen TV. Maybe you can dispel some of those myths. Or in general, do you agree with that sentiment? No, I don't. Uh, first of all, I think uh, it's a huge difference from Halden Prison, which is one of our newest prisons, to the majority of Norwegian high-security prisons. But, you know, one of the big myths uh, is, you know, the boutique hotels, the nice furniture. And I think going to those prisons, the the thing is the furniture is completely normal. I think in Norway it will be considered to be a kind of, you know, petty standard. Uh, but it's new. And it's kind of, even though we are a prison, we don't buy ugly broken furniture because it's uh, inmates are going to use them we buy new okay usable furniture and if it looks nice it's good it, it's, it's an asset but i think the, the the big thing for us is that the furniture is useful and i think uh, it's also very good to have for instance art on the wall normal art that you could buy in any big furniture store we don't have like monk paintings in the prisons if somebody thought that but it's, you know it's kind of normal things we put into the prison and the reason for doing so is that one of our leading principles for the correctional service is what we call the principle of normality and that principle states that the everyday life in prison should be as close to the normal life life on the outside as possible and in the sentence the only thing the prisoners are depraved from is freedom. They're not depraved from having normal furniture. They're not in the sentence say something saying that they're not allowed to, to play football in their spare time and so on. So we need to you know, try to recreate the everyday life even in our high security prisons. 
as close to the everyday life on the outside as we can, because that is in the best interest of the general public. But that doesn't sound like a clickbaity title where I can have lots of clicks. It doesn't. <laughs> and that, that's a problem coming to corrections in any country, because I think, as I started saying, uh, both media, uh, politicians, they, in order to get, you know, have clickbait, have votes, they address what people find like spectacular uh, or can kind of uh, build up uh, around their gut feeling. So if you have a journalist that can, you know, either say, here we have a good, well-functioning, modern prison with uh, well-functioning inmates. Uh, and on the other side, you will have a, a headline saying, uh, our prison system is failing, the inmates are worse than ever, uh, it's so violent. Everybody will click on this last article. Every politician will kind of use that article rather than the first one. Yeah, absolutely. It's in, in every industry and it's just unfortunate. Yeah, but, 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 but I have to add, because that being said, I think the Norwegian Correctional Service, I think we have a quite good relationship to our media. Uh, I think over the, the last five years or so, I think all our tabloid media from, uh, you know, from the left to the right have had in their editorials, you know, support for the prison ser service and the way we are doing business. Uh, and I think that's a very good thing to have, uh, that we actually feel that we have media in, in our back if something should occur. And I think that has to do with some of uh, our other core values, which are openness. And I think that's also why I'm sitting here talking to you today, because I could easily say, no, it's Friday, I want to go home. But I think it's uh, uh, in our correctional service best interest, it's in the general public's best interest that we try to explain what we're doing and why we're doing it. Uh, I think that's really, really important to try to build down these you know, stereotypes, uh, ideas of what prisons and prisoners are like. But I, I think also uh, that, you know, it's, it's, it's a wanted change because I remember from the 80s and the 90s, a lot of media was quite negative towards the Norwegian Correctional Service. And that's before we had this uh, very open media policy uh, where our directorate and our general director said that, no, we need to be open towards the media. People need to know what prison is like. And for instance, if that means that when a journalist calls me, uh, I would... Uh, you know, prefer to say yes, okay, you can come in, we can have a meeting, uh, rather than say no, you're not allowed here. Because then I will, as a prison governor, you know, help building those myths. I will help. Um, uh, I will. I will kind of stop the taxpayer for see, for seeing what they actually are, are paying tax for. And I think we need to be so transparent. We need to show the taxpayers that well, this is our prison system. Uh, this is how it works. We're doing it for you. We're doing it so you can feel safe when you are in your home or, or walking in the streets. And that's a, is a story that we need to tell time and time again. I think it's so important. And uh, I think it's so bad that a lot of prison systems really are quite skeptical to, you know, dealing with media, dealing with journalists, uh, because it's only we only punish ourselves by doing so. Yeah, I think that's one of the most innovative things that I see in, in your prison system is just being so open, being so transparent, engaging in the discussion to so, hey, look, we're leading by example. Take a look, come in and experience the whole prison system yourself. Yeah, I think yeah, I think that's quite uh, useful. So I would kind of recommend any prison system uh, to 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 challenge the prison system in the country to because I think. In a lot of countries, they will see that probably you will find more positive things than you thought you will discover. Because I've, I've been in a lot of prison systems around, both in the US and in Europe, and I see in a lot of countries that you have a lot of positive things also going on that should be told. 
Yeah, absolutely. So mo most people would be probably quick to assume that it would be quite easy to implement such changes in the U.S. And you've mentioned that they are open for change and are bringing some of these changes to the U.S. But um, as evidence that more a humane correctional system that focuses on rehabilitation, reintegration is much more effective. But what I wasn't aware of, or at least not to that extent, was the fact that Norway and Germany have really managed to insulate their prison officials from political pressures. And that seems to be a real constraint for the U.S. counterparts, where correctional leaders don't always stick around very long in the U.S. with the risk of the predecessor then undoing all the good progress. So some U.S. prison officials would say, yeah, that, that wouldn't work in the U.S. because the population in Norway is much smaller, they don't have the drug problem, yada, yada, yada. So do you think there's something special about Norwegian people, their culture, their socialization that makes them more susceptible to rehabilitation? Absolutely not. When I see our prisoners, uh, I think it's not that much that, you know, separates, for instance, a Norwegian drug addict or an American drug addict. It's the same. They have the same problems. They have the same issues. Uh, as we have a saying in Norway, a person is a person like, or, or a human is a human. I mean, your passport doesn't, you know, change the fact, that fact. Uh, and I've, you know, I've had in my time as a governor on Buster prisons, uh, we had a lot of visitors from, for instance, uh, a lot of countries in Europe and, and America. Uh, I always ended those visits by, you know, asking the visitors, you know, could, could it be a Buster in your country? Uh, and it was a lot of, you know, excuses on why. And they all said, well, this is beautiful. Uh, I love the idea, but it's not possible in my country. And the excuses varies from now the politicians won't like it, media won't like it. We have no Ireland in my country. That was actually said by the um, Minister of Justice from the Czech Republic. But what he actually did was that, or he was the deputy Minister of Justice, he went back to his Ministry of Justice, Prague, and said, hey, I, I want a postoy uh, in the Czech Republic. And now they have a bust in the Czech Republic. They have actually adopted more of the, you know, of the thinking. And just last year, they opened their first low security prison. Wow. Based on the idea of Sobosta. So it's possible. And I also had a meeting with the Minister of Justice uh, of another European countries from uh, one of the Eastern European countries. And he said, no, you should just see our inmates. They're so, you know, violent and crazy. So it couldn't be possible. They will kill each other. I said, well... That's strange because you have just here in this prison, I have four of your countrymen and they blend in and behave exactly the same as our native Norwegian prisoners. So it's more about, as I said earlier, the culture you put in and are having in the culture rather than the person. The person, they are you know, more or less victims uh, to the culture. Uh, if you start treating the prisoners differently, uh, they also the, the, the culture will change. Uh, I'm very confident. So I think it's a lot of excuses, but I think in the end, It all ends uh, up to the fact that a human being is a human being. And we tend to behave exactly the same regardless of the passport. So do you think, and if we kind of touch on the, on the gender issue, that crime is a, is a male thing? And are men more likely to be criminal than women? Well, at least the statistics say so. Uh, I think that the, the ratio of incarcerated men in, in Norway is quite much higher than a, a female one. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I think that uh, that's a fact. I don't know whether we are more criminal, but at least we are caught that much more. So maybe we are just more stupid, I don't know. Uh, the thing is that the prison, pop the female prison population in Norway are, are quite small. So 
unluckily, I think the, the, the female prisoners don't have that much possibilities in our prisons like a male counterpart. I mean, I, I read a study, at least for the U.S., that applies like 93% are men and 7% are women. But the studies indicate actually that men aren't necessarily more criminal by design, but that they're indeed, there's an institutional bias against men. And it's kind of a well-known fact as well as that they're regularly given more or longer prison sentences and women are significantly likelier to avoid the harsh sentences and are also like quite, I think, twice as likely to avoid incarceration. Yeah, that, that might be true. Uh, I've read that too. And I think from my experience, it seems like that's, that, that, that might be the fact. And, and where, where do you think the Norwegian correctional system needs improvement? I'm, I'm sure there's not everything is perfect. Nothing's perfect. Uh, where, where is it lacking? Well, obviously you're right. We're not absolutely not perfect. I'm really very much in favor of you know the, uh, conducting our business in our correctional service, but it has some flaws, really. One of the biggest issues here right now is uh, our use of solitary confinement. Uh, we use that way, way too much. And we had an inspection by the uh, ombudsman for the parliament last year, and he delivered a quite critical report to our parliament. So just last week, we had an open hearing in the parliament about the Norwegian use of solitary confinement, and that, that should stop. So... That part of our criminal, uh, uh, sorry, correction system, uh, I'm not very proud of, for sure. And also, I think over the last last um, uh, seven years or so, we have been cut so much in funding. Uh, so it now seems, you know, on the border to being quite critical in some prisons. We have so many vacant positions, so much lack of staff because of budget cuts. So that needs also to change. Uh, otherwise, you know, it will start to um, affect our rehabilitation programs, for instance. Both the funding and the solitary confinement is quite bad. The Norwegian prison has solitary confinement? No, it's not used as a punishment. Uh, uh, it, it's actually because some of our, especially old prisons, are constructed in a way that uh, they have, for instance, very small uh, mingling areas for inmates. Uh, yeah, the number of staff is quite low. Uh, so the inmates don't tend to get that much out of their cells as they should. So we don't use solitary confinement as an extra punishment. That, that doesn't happen that much. That's in, in very special cases. And, and then the solitary confinement is also very We use it as a punishment. Oh, to me, it sounds like uh, Tom for Norwegian Prime Minister. If you want Tom to become Norway's next Prime Minister, please email Erna Solberg, urging her to take Tom on as a candidate. <laughs> Well, uh, I'm finished with politics. <laughs> Hope I don't get you in trouble. No, <laughs> thanks for that. Yeah, I think you had a quite you know interesting statement here. Uh, you're saying the philosophy of German's prison system is uh, one that can be summed up by the punishment should be time served and not inflict pain or be punitive. And I think that you know it's very interesting because it, we say the same thing here. And I think a lot of other countries also are saying the same thing in their legislation, but they don't follow up on that because they inflict more pain and are more punitive because of you know uh, the way they're treating the prisoners, which is probably has to do with culture, tradition, uh, and so on. So most would argue, what about the victims? So if a crime has already occurred, one obviously can't change that, but we, what we can change, what I understood from you and from the philosophy of the Norwegian Correctional Services is that I I can change the inmate to prevent more victims in the future. But the question now becomes, should that apply to the most extreme 
cases as well. And I just want to read a really short excerpt of the Reuters article from 2015 that is titled Mass Killer Brevik to study at the Oslo University from GL. So Andreas Brevik was a terrorist who killed 77 people on the island of Utoya. And the justification for him studying at the University of Oslo was given he meets the admission requirements. We stick to our rules and he will be admitted. Oslo University rector Ole Peter Ottersen told Reuters saying prisoners are eligible to study as long as their academic grades are good enough. So under the terms of his sentence, Brevik is hold in in solidary confinement and will be unable to attend lectures or seminar, to be fair. Do you agree, generally agree with that sentiment? Uh, should that philosophy apply to the most extreme cases as well? Yeah. I think so in general. I, I won't comment on, on Breivik uh, as an individual. It is very controversial, yeah. Yeah, uh, but, but I think uh, what I'm proud of after the um, mass killings at Ute and uh, at the governmental building, our court system uh, and also later our prison system has actually treated him as any other criminal. Uh, what it did was the worst that probably has ever happened in Norway in, in, in modern times. I'm very happy that he was you know, caught, put in prison for a long period of time. But I'm also very proud that uh, we treat him like any other inmate, because that's about what we call likeness for the law. He's been given a sentence, a long sentence uh, in, in our courts, well and secure behind bars. Uh, so we have you know, we are taking him away from the streets. He's no longer a threat to anyone. He's serving his time, but he should have, in principle, the same rights as any any other human being, uh, because that's what our laws tells us. Uh, and we cannot, you know, go beyond our laws or outside our law system, treat him badly be just because it's him. And I think one of the people in our service that I really admire the most is the, the retired director of our prison staff academy, a guy called Harald Fusker. He was in the governmental building when uh, Breivik bombed that building. He was quite badly injured. Oh, wow. He lost most of his sight, has been uh, in and out of hospitals ever since. And obviously, you know, uh, he hates this guy enormously because what did and deprived him of a lot of good years with good health. Uh, so I understand that that that, that, that hatred but what he says also, in addition, is very, very interesting and really makes me really, really proud of our service and him. Uh, he said that what he's really proud of is that the prison officers educated at the time of uh, being the director at the Prison Staff Academy is treating him with the exact same respect as he taught them when he, they were students uh, at the academy. And I think that kind of shows uh, what I've been trying to explain earlier on, that we need to have as humans, it's quite natural to have the humans and the need for revenge, to feel the, the hatred, the bitterness when something wrong has been done to us, ourselves or our loved ones. But punishment, uh, governmental issued punishment, should be about principles and a humanistic approach rather than be led by gut feelings. So I think that these two um, uh, expressions from him quite describes kind of our correctional service in a very good way. The most astonishing thing, I think, is that Norway hasn't wavered, that they, despite maybe public pressure, and I can assume that was very, very big, is that they did not waver. And what I always try to explain to people with human rights, they're unalienable. That means no matter what somebody does, you still have human rights. It's a dilemma. Sure, he took 77 people. But in the moment where we say, okay, this, these human rights or these laws don't apply to him, that becomes a slippery slope. And having the guts as Norway to say, nope, we're still going to treat him with dignity 
dignity and respect and treat them like a human being because we believe in the values that our society has, I think that in itself is, I mean, it speaks for itself. Yeah, I think and that's actually what makes me so proud, both that we have a judicial system that actually allows us to send him to prison technically or theoretically for the rest of his life. But still, we treat him with the same respect uh, like we treat any other uh, inmate. And I think that makes me quite pride, proud of the system I'm a part of. The most striking comment that I read was from, um, I don't know where it was, but it was from Ragnar Christofferson, an anthropologist who teaches at the Correctional Service of Norway's Staff Academy. If you treat people badly, it's a reflection on yourself. And that really, you know, that if you let that sink in, that's, there's also a famous quote that's usually attributed to uh, Dostoevsky, the degree of civilization in a society can be judged by entering its prisons. But but his quote, Christensen, uh, it's a reflection on yourself. That's... I think, very powerful in itself. So my question would be, to me, there's this whole episode is, is like very obvious. It's like, no shit, Sherlock. If you treat inmates like animals, uh, do you expect well-behaved citizens? It, I mean, it's not rocket science. So wh- why, why do you think not more countries are following Norway's example? Well, I, I, I very much agree with what you're saying. and But I think that has to do, you know, with with the way politicians, some media, you know, are addressing this monster in our stomach that, you know, screams for revenge, uh, because that's very, it's, it's very easy to do so. You know, uh, if you're in a bar, you are discussing prison policies, criminal law or whatever, and you say that, you know, you, you want to treat uh, inmates with respect, they need education, uh, we cannot put people in prison for life, we need to release them so they are better when they are released than when they came in and so on. I mean, you, you, you don't get very popular in those discussions because that's not, you know, the, the, what is surrounding any prison system, any correction system is a lot of myths because we are so closed, we are so little transparent. Uh, so we have kind of helped build build those uh, myths ourselves, and that kind of uh, is refle- reflecting also the discussion about uh, crime and punishment. I think throughout history you have had uh, a lot of you know uh, big leaders, good and bad, that have said you know really brilliant things about crime and punishment. And but that was said like two three hundred years ago. You know, uh, Russia had this big Tsar, Peter the Great. You heard of him, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. He, he had this uh, quote that was saying that prison is a horrible, damn piece of work. And for this bad piece of work, you need motivated, brave and good prison officers. You know, and that was said like 150 years ago. You had, you know, conservative people like Winston Churchill that had said, you know, really brilliant things about prison service. Last but not least, uh, I mean, the last big speech that was you know, given by a politician about prison prison service was David Cameron in, in his speech to the parliament about the state of the prison service uh, in England. I think it was like uh, just before he resigned. And the, the speech was brilliant. It was so many good points. But going from, you know, those big words to action, that, that seems, you know, uh, as, a, as, as a big blank sheet to cover. Because, I mean, the ideas are there, the quotes are there, but still to put it into action seems, you know, very hard. Yeah, and that's actually a, a nice segue to kind of sum this up. And I think a lot of listeners might read the title and say, okay, what does this have to do with innovation? And innovation can sometimes mean rediscovering old things, old values, and implementing them in a new or even old way in a society that has just 
made a detour. And I think Norway especially has shown and, and proven that with uh, Brevik that they talk the talk and, and walk the walk. That's commendable, very commendable. I feel so too. And I think that, as I said several times now, I, I feel quite proud to be a part of such such a system. Uh, and as you mentioned earlier on, I mean, prison work, prison policies isn't about, you know, being rocket science. It's quite, it's, it's quite easy. We have a lot of research. We have a lot of knowledge on what works and not. We know at least what, what doesn't work because we have been doing it for since the Middle Ages. And that is, you know, putting people by, behind bars for an unlimited period of time and treating them badly. That's the worst thing we can do. And I mean, everybody knows that. So if listeners say, I really like Tom, I really like the insights he provided in this interview, where should listeners go? Where should I send them if they want to contact Kevin Costner? I mean, Tom Eberhard. Oh, those people who think I look like Kevin Costner, I'm afraid they will be a bit disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, well, I, I, two years ago, I gave a TED, TED Talk about this, uh, some of these issues, especially about you know prison culture. So they can see that on YouTube uh, or on TEDtalks.com. Uh, Other than that, I work in the, in the Norwegian Correctional Director. So just email me there. I'm open. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day, your busy schedule. I really appreciate taking the time and being very open about the topics. Oh, my pleasure. Wow, what a insightful interview, jam-packed with some timeless gems. So now it's this time again to reflect upon the interview and give you some of the key takeaways. So what are my key takeaways for you? Well, many countries such as the US have high crime rates, overcrowded prison systems, inhumane conditions, high recidivism rates, despite them having the death penalty as the harshest form of punishment. So that doesn't seem to work. So how do we solve this huge and almost monumental problem? And where do we start? Well, the solution, as often in life, is counterintuitive. It would seem very logical and emo emotionally satisfying to punish people for their crimes. And remember, Tom mentioned in the podcast, prison can happen to anyone. So a petty altercation can quickly become a 10-year prison sentence. But to keep people from coming back into prison, we have to make prisons look nicer and not scarier in the hopes that these inmates won't commit the crimes again. So essentially doing the exact opposite of what we're doing today. And we really need that to change. And the prisons in Norway not only look like college campuses, but they also feel like people are there to learn and the staff are there to teach them something. So essentially the Norwegians built their prisons to do exactly what they said they were going to do, to rehabilitate. And it starts with how we treat prisoners, the behavior, the education of prison guards towards their inmates that are not only guarding them, but more importantly, rehabilitating them to become good neighbors again. And it starts with people like Tom. Tom should be the stereotypical prison guard, the poster child we think of when we hear prison. But sadly, today, that's just not the case. Nowadays, Norway's correctional system is a shining example of how to not only make society a better and safer place, but also give human beings a second chance, a chance to rehabilitate themselves. Furthermore, evolutionary psychologists even argue that both vengeance and forgiveness are universal behaviors. People can and routinely do forgive others, even in severe cases of crimes. We human beings are naturally born with both capacities, to blame and retaliate or punish, or to forgive and seek reparations. Which one we choose is up to us. We need to evolve our justice and correctional system to move away from retribution and towards rehabilitation. The justice system itself 
can offer forgiveness not on behalf or in place of the victims, but on its own terms. And the justice systems can be better designed to embody rehabilitation strategies. If Norway, a former nation of pillaging Vikings full of violence, murder, and rape, can transform itself into a country where peace and forgiveness can triumph, similar to how Germany and Rwanda went from countries of mass genocide to countries of peace, so can any country. Criminals, too, have proven that they can do wrong, but let them prove that they can do something right and contribute to society. And lastly, I want to recommend a documentary called Prison Dogs. It was also nominated for three Emmy Awards, has won two of them, and has been nominated twice for the Academy Award, winning one of them, and also won three Peabody Awards. So what's that all about? Well, it focuses on the impact of unique dog training program that gives two of the most marginalized population in our society, prison inmates and veterans, a second chance. And you can rent the documentary for about, I think, two, two euros 70 on Vimeo, and I'll post that in the show notes. It's well worth a watch, not just because of the puppies, so you might want to give that a shot. And if you made it until the end of this long episode, thank you so much. I know how valuable your time is, especially in the age of social media where hardly anybody reads or listens to long-form content anymore. And thank you again to Tom for taking so much time out of his busy schedule to do this interview. If you want to show Tom some appreciation for his work he's doing, send him an email or message on LinkedIn, and don't forget to watch his very uh, enlightening TED Talk. So that concludes this episode. I was your host, David Luna, signing off. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and podcast, there's plenty more where that came from. Just head to our website, GammaBeyond.com or follow us on LinkedIn. There you will also find long form articles, videos, and other podcast episodes about innovation and transformation. And if I could ask you for one small favor, it would be this. Please don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating or review in iTunes, Overcast, or the podcast app of your choice. It really helps us out and encourages more people to find our podcast. Last but not least, if you have any suggestions for further episodes, topics, or guests that we should invite in our podcast, or just have feedback, let us know by emailing us at info at I've been your host, David Luna. Until next time.